and guys, so real quick too, you were talking about when the plane left, they debarked. How many people were on the Hawaii Clipper when it left? 15. So, but Joe Grace didn't know about this. See, all he knew is he took a picture of a cement slab of 15 people, Americans, buried face down, some of them wearing Navy uniforms, and they were buried in concrete and in tubes. So here's the beginning. Here's the, the genesis of your 80-year-old crime scene here. Uh, that's never been solved. It's a cold case that's still, I believe, open because the Department of Transportation and Department of Commerce never closed the investigation on it. It's still open to this day. Welcome to Game of Crimes. Amigos, amigas, players, playwrights, dudes, dudettes, and everybody in between, welcome back. This is going to be a great episode. But anyway, we wanted to welcome back and tell you, first of all, who we are. If you haven't figured it out by now, I am one of the hosts with the most and the guest host uh, who has toast in front of him right now. No, I don't have toast. Morgan Wright. <laughs> and I'm here literally with my partner in crime. Hey, everybody. It's Murph. Welcome back. Or as we say in the South, hola, y'all. Hola, y'all. So, hey, guys, uh, let's do some real quick housekeeping because I want to we want to we're going to talk about this episode. Uh, Murph's going to tee it up, but we had a great episode last time. We got a lot of comments on it, but let us get through these things first. And then we're going to spend a little time talking about the previous episode. But that being said, it is time for housekeeping. Apple reviews, Spotify, hit those five stars. Let us know you like this a lot. You like I'm guaranteeing you if episode 60 about Natasha did not bring you to tears, you got to go get yourself checked out. Make sure your ticker's still working. Lord, you're not kidding. You're not kidding. I mean, the comments we're getting in are unbelievable on that. Uh, what a what a heroic, don't let your past get you down interview. Yeah, and we're going to get to that in just a second. Um, head on over to our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We'll put a lot of stuff there. Our book list is there, like when we did Michael Franzisi, uh, episode 59, I think it was. A lot of books, six books by that gentleman. So a lot of good stuff there. Follow us on the social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram, but where you have to be, I'm guaranteeing you, where you have to be, where do you have to be? Murph, where do you have to be? You got to get over to Patreon and listen to this stuff. We just finished recording one of our 911 What's Your Emergency episodes, and the stuff we're putting on there, it's it's heartbreaking, it's tear-jerking, it's funny. A lot of it is uh, we have the Q&A, which you guys send in your questions, which I love doing that because it shows you know what your interests are. There's so much content that you're not going to hear on the regular podcast, and you're probably not going to hear anywhere else. So come on over and give us a try. Yeah, and I'm telling you, we just uh, we we did that. Um, we did our uh, narcometer review of Blow with George Young. And by the way, we have some inside information that nobody else has got. We got the last interview with George, and there's information we have in ours. We compare it against the movie for accuracy, authenticity, and believability. We rate it on a scale of one to ten kilos, and Steve gave it ten kilos. I gave it a nine simply because. You'll have to find out why I gave it a <laughs> there nine. There you go. Keep them see, there you go. Thought I was going to tell you, but I'm not. So head on <laughs> over to Game of Crimes. They're on Patreon, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. I'm, I'm telling you, just uh, tell one, share one for you folks who are on Patreon. We salute you. Thank you so much. Also use paypal.com and our email address, gameofcrimespodcast at gmail.com or paypal.me slash Game of Crimes, whatever it makes it easier for you to support the show and help us bring you even more exciting content. Now, before I get into our standard disclaimer, I wanted to spend just a couple minutes 
uh, before we get into this and do our small town police blotter because I don't want to I don't want to I don't I don't want to take away from the importance of the last episode. So Steve, you were talking. I I got so many. Um, comments from people, everything from kind of funny stuff, like one guy offered to give you and me an alibi that we're at his place having barbecue and drinking beer um, when we would go handle stuff for Natasha, go down to Texas. Uh, Sandy Salvato, our favorite mafia queen, is organizing kind of people to reach out to the University of Arizona, the admissions people, and say, you know, hey, shame on you for what you did. Yes. People, this this got people fired up. I mean, we've had episodes where people are fired up, but Steve, this one, more than anything else, uh, I think educated people opened the eyes of a lot of people, but it impacted it. It touched people in a way I don't think a lot of our episodes have. They touched them in a different way, but this one was very special. It was. Uh, for you know, for Natasha to have the the bravery and the guts to come on and to continue to tell her story and and to tell it uh, at somewhat of a professional level now is just, you know, it's it's above and beyond on, on the Call of Duty uh, scale here. And I got to tell you, my wife just read uh, one of the neighborhood blogs down here in Orlando where a lady was talking about she's walking through her neighborhood. Uh, a guy in a car starts stalking her. She runs. She hides. He continues to stalk her. He's yelling out to her. And she put it out on on their neighborhood blog to warn everybody in the neighborhood that there's somebody out there. And some dumbass comes across with his response of, well, did you think that maybe he's following you because you're wearing those sexually provocative yoga pants? You know, if you didn't dress like that, maybe people wouldn't follow you. And then he goes on to say that most people in the sex business, in the illegal sex business, prostitution basically, are there because they're already living promiscuous lifestyles. What an idiotic, stupid thing to say. It's all I can do to not respond to him and say, what freaking planet have you been living on, you jackass? Hey, well, send me his name and address. I'll send him a special present. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I just, well, you know, those kind of people, they're not brave enough to put their real name on there. They use little uh, acronyms for their name. You know, I'm, his should be, I'm a real dumbass. Yeah. Well, hey, look, pal, if you're listening to this, which hopefully you aren't because you're one person, I would say, don't don't even bother subscribing. But, mm-hmm. but you know, what she did, it's to your point, Steve, people had, if you, if you listen to how she grew up, you listen to her backstory, being a missionary, the way her family, very Christian family, you know, grew up just a straight kid. And then you wonder, how did she go from that to being trafficked, to being in the adult industry for what she did? I can tell you how. When mm-hmm. you beat somebody up and you break them down physically, mentally, emotionally like that, and you you come close to killing them, you you threaten to kill everything in their life, and then you say, well, she shouldn't have done this. Well, how do you know? What have you been through that qualifies you to say that she shouldn't have acted like this? So um, right. here's the thing. She survived. And and like we did when we talked with Sherry Foster, you know, you can be a victor or a victim. She chose to be a victor. Absolutely. Same thing with Natasha. Chose to be a victor. And she's not, she, she, she is very upfront about what she did. Yep. As we said, that's probably one of the most important interviews we've ever done. If you're following us on social media, you'll see that we put out there, please share this. We need to yep. get the story out there about what's really going on. So do your part. Don't just be a, a, a wallflower. Send it to your friends, who's ever in your, your friends category. Let them know so we can just spread this thing exponentially. Not Not for the purpose of promoting Game of Crimes, but for the purpose of warning everybody. It's that yep. freaking important. Promoting her story. That's what it's all about. And look, by the way, if uh, if you're the asshole that wants to post stuff like uh, what Murph just said, feel free to send me your name and address. I'll send you mine. And uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll get together and we'll have a discussion. Anyway, 
let's, I don't want to go too far down that path because we could do a whole episode just on the responses from that. And maybe that's what we do. We'll collect some stuff and we'll dive into this. But anyway, let us get back to our regularly scheduled yeah. podcast now and talk about our disclaimer. This is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but. Normally, we never take ourselves seriously. Natasha's episode was a little different, but we're back to having some fun now. We're back to having fun. We're back to being funny. So, Steve, guess what time it is? I'm going to guess it's time for... Small Town Police Blotter. Blotter. And of course, you cannot have a police blotter without a Florida man story. So we're going to get to that in one second. (laughs) Here we go. So this one comes from somebody who identifies himself as KD, but they they added us, A-T-T-E-D. They added us uh, on Twitter. He goes by, or he or she goes by C-Town Cyclone. Game of Crimes, is this small town police blotter material or better suited for you can't make this shit up? Well, we've just answered your question. (laughs) Bridgewater Police in Massachusetts. And this happened just July 17th of this year, Steve, at 1130 a.m. A caller from Plymouth Street concerned about a yard sale that is selling a dog. Steve, the dog is caged, directly in the sun, with no water. So the police show up there. Officer reports the dog is a stuffed animal. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. (laughs) That's not funny, but it is funny, you know? (laughs) At least somebody did have the the presence of mind to say that's not right to treat an animal like that. Called in... (laughs) Stuffed animal. And by the way, Steve, you know that there is a new element to the U.S. military. So we have the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, which Marines is a uh, department of the Navy, if you've listened to them. Uh, You've got the Coast Guard. And now you have Space Force. Yeah. A Florida man, of course, (laughs) was arrested Friday. This happened just July 26th. Was arrested Friday for driving a stolen pickup truck to the Space Force base in Brevard County in what he called a mission from the President of the United States. (laughs) 29-year-old Corey Johnson of Ocala stole a Ford F-150 from Riviera Beach, Florida, population 37,604. Not really a small town, but we'll give you kind of a half a salute. So, salute. Yeah. Three days before he drove to Patrick Space Force Base. When he tried to get on the base, he claimed the President told him, in his mind, that he needed to take the vehicle and warn government officials that there were U.S. aliens fighting Chinese dragons. Okay. Uh, he was arrested, charged with grand theft, booked at $3,000. Uh, bond was set at $3,000. So Patrick Space Force is home to the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station and the Space Force Launch Delta 45, described as the premier launch delta of the new United States Space Force. It is 18 miles away from the Kennedy Space Center. And apparently he's been watching Independence Day too many times. Uh, the aliens are not in Florida. They're in Area 51. We all know that. You know that. I know that. The American people know that. Hey, very familiar with Patrick Air Force Base. That's uh, just up the road a little bit, just like a mile from Satellite Beach, where that's where my wife and I like to go hang out. You should have stopped this guy from going there. But Murph, you, you failed once again. You failed me. All right. Well, holy cow. Stole the truck to go to deliver that important message. What a, Not only was he held on bond, but he was put in a padded room. That's right. <laughs> Speaking of somebody who's going to need a padded room, 10.05 p.m., police received a call from a woman who said her juvenile granddaughter was at the ski area last week and ran into a person who was selling bags of what she thought were portobello mushrooms dipped in chocolate for $30. Number one, why would you dip portobello mushrooms in chocolate? (laughs) And sell them on the side of the road there. 
<laughs> so police said the granddaughter further informed her grandmother that giraffes were chasing her down the hill after she ate the mushrooms. I wonder why. <laughs> Well, it's, we're not making they, fun of her condition, but it's like, oh my god! Well, yeah, to be that stupid. Well, the problem was the pink elephants kept getting in the way. The giraffes had to slow down. That's why they couldn't catch. That's it. right. Uh, Duh. Okay. Well, <laughs> pro tip, folks: do not eat chocolate-covered portobello mushrooms, no matter what price they are. Oh, idiots! Well, <laughs> you know all this stuff fit, would fit in. Well, you can't make this shit up on Patreon. <laughs> No, you can't make make this shit up. So, hey, but the other thing, too, you can't make up. You can't make up the fact that we have a Game of Crimes group and a Game of Crimes fan page. So you yeah. can find that. Just mention Game of Crimes. Just go to Game of Crimes fans run by our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato. Just answer a couple easy questions. Get in on the inside scoop. We put stuff into our public group. Anybody can join. But these are the select few, the few, the proud. The players. The, you, sh- you really should go over there and join that just to see. And, and we, you know... Uh, it doesn't cost anything. It's free. And, and the people in that fan club, they post some hilarious stuff. It's great. And, and I will tell you, we get some of our uh, stories for ideas for small town police blotter. You can't make this shit up. Come from directly you, from the players. So, um, but, uh, but we will of, give you one word, one, one word of warning. Do not piss off Sandy. She's the leader. She Her name ends in a vowel. She's made yep. people disappear. Just there remember you go. that. All right. Well, speaking of things that disappeared 80 years ago. That's a good segue into our episode, Steve. Here. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and actually, you know, you get credit you get credit for this one because uh, you actually have an involvement. As they say, we disclose conflicts of interest up front. So Steve has a conflict of interest with this case because he's been involved in it. And this is, you know, we called this, it's in uh, our guest talked about it, Guy Nofsinger. I'll let you do the intro. It is. It's an 80-year-old cold case involving murder, and it may have been the event that actually was one of the first things that led to the Japanese uh, and the United States uh, in World War II. Yep. So Guy Nofsinger and I have been friends for quite some time. He's he's a former naval intelligence officer. Well, Guy doesn't, Guy doesn't approve that message. He says you may have been his friend. He wasn't your friend. Yeah. No, you don't know him very well then. We're very good friends. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> but, uh, okay. When he was going through, uh, it wasn't command staff college, but it was it was somewhat equivalent, equivalent like to that. Like a naval intelligence school. Yeah. Yeah. His his thesis was on the Lost Clipper. Now, the this is about a seaplane that the Pan Am Airways created that flew from the United States over to, was it Hong Kong, I believe? And the story is beyond belief. This is no kidding. Now, this happened in 1938. It disappeared. Uh, there were 15 Americans, Americans on board who disappeared as well, haven't been seen since. Now, the investigation... He's been investigating this thing for over 20 years. He brought Javier and I on uh, as the lead investigators from the Lost Clipper. And, and just right off the bat, if you want to find out more before you listen, uh, check out www.thelostclipper.com. You'll see what we're talking about. There's photographs on there. There's videos and so forth. But if we can prove this story, and I'm not going to give you any more details right now, we're going to change history. You know, I, went, I, I was fortunate Steve, enough to Steve, hold on one One correction. It's lostclipper.com. We don't want people going to do the Lost Clipper. True. Thank you. Yeah. And you won't hear me say thank you to Morgan very often, but I just did. So, <laughs> Well, if um, we're going to tell the story, we want to make sure it is. True. Um, but if, if we can prove this, it will change the history books on several different levels. So this is one of the most exciting stories. You talk about suspenseful. Javier and I, when we're on the road giving our presentation about the Escobar story, and if, it, if some of our audiences ask for uh, up to a four-hour presentation, 
we've got to create some filler sometimes because that's a long time to be in front of an audience speaking. And we'll give them about a five or 10 minute overview of the Lost Clipper. And every law enforcement office, office, every law enforcement conference that we've ever given that little, that little tidbit to afterwards comes up with questions, man, what are you guys doing? And you know what? The year before COVID, I actually got to go over with Guy Hoffsinger and the team to Micronesia to the country of Chuuk. And we spent two weeks searching for these 15 American bodies. What happened? Well, you got to listen to today's episode. That's right. And um, they, let me tell you, Guy is a funny guy. <laughs> you know, he's a, he's a fun guy. But just his background, too, about how he got into this. And again, another guy who was attempting to gloss over his contribution to the safety and security of the United States, defending against all enemies, foreign and domestic. We had to pull it out of him as the trained investigators and interviewers. We are. But I, I'm telling you. This is a fascinating case, um, and you will also, too, that there is an ask uh, at the end. And so we'll save that ask at the end, but they, they, need, they need just a little help to go back with the right kind of technology. They've narrowed it down. They think they're very close. And if you want to hear the rest of the story, guess what, Murph? Then I have to just ask you, are you ready to hear and ready to talk about and ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes? This is a story you're not going to hear about anywhere else. I can almost guarantee that. So get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. Bring on Guy Knopfsinger telling us about the Lost Clipper. I can count higher than you, Murph, because I've got I've got ten fingers and ten toes. I don't know how many you got left. And as you can see, this episode is already starting off on a bad foot, no pun intended. See, I've got six toes on both feet. I mean, what the heck? You're you're slow and behind. I told you not to play with those firecrackers, blowing up frogs and stuff. Yeah, well, uh, th- this guy that we have on here, so uh this is going to be a unique episode because the person we have on with us, Guy Knopfsinger, does not fit into one of our buckets. In other words, he's not a law enforcement type. He's not, well, he may be a criminal type. We just don't know. Him. We'll get oh into the bottom goodness. of that later. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, he's not one of our victims of crime. Uh, but he ha- does have an interesting story related to crime, and this is about an eighty-year-old crime scene. Now, what the heck are we talking about? Well, guess what? You're just going to have to hang on with us and find out. So, first of all. Murph, you know, I'm like, again, I'm sorry you had to work with Murph on this, but Guy Knopfsinger, welcome to Game of Crimes. Thank you very much. Woo-hoo. I'm glad to be here. Glad to say that now. Brother. Wait till the podcast is over. We'll see. We'll take a vote at the end. <laughs> hey, he's used to me. Our guy's already used to me. He's not used to you. Uh, you know, good luck. Well, this will, this will be a step up for you, Guy, then. Trust me. This will be good. <laughs> well, you know how to handle him well. I'm impressed. Uh, yeah, we will yeah. elevate this conversation. We'll see. Um, yeah. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Let's uh, not no flood. Stop. Hold on, Murph. The other, we'll start with the Florida jokes. You turtle. Oh, <laughs> you, nice we one. know what happened on our turtle. You can't make this shit up. Remember the turtle on its back, no arms, no legs, no head. Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, hey, so guy, hey, but but welcome. And so this is fun because we all have, we are all connected literally by one degree of separation. We all have a mutual friend, Stephen Klaus, and who has kind of got us connected with all of the stuff. And you and I, we were just talking before we got on. When you were working a project, and folks will figure this out a little bit in terms of what you do um, with the Park Service, you know, was helping Stephen with that. And so you've been working with Murph on this project, uh, the Lost Clipper, which is what we're going to talk about today. But as we do with everybody, let's talk about this thing of ours. How do you are in what business? I'm in the film production business. 
And how did you get started in that? Was it, uh, were you the kid that was creeping around the neighborhood, taking pictures over the fence <laughs> with the camera? I mean, this is where we find out if you were criminally inclined as, as a youth. Who says he's not still doing that? <laughs> <laughs> he just got 4K drones now to do it with. He doesn't, you know. Yeah, and Murphy looks terrible in a Speedo. So just letting you know, don't go there. You're just jealous. <laughs> I didn't need a picture to tell you that, pal. <laughs> no, I started actually, um, I had always wanted to be in the movies, I guess I would say. And so, but um, when I was in high school, um, I was not a very good student because I just didn't apply myself. I only wanted to do the fun stuff. I didn't want to do the hard stuff like the math and science. Where'd you so go to high school at? I went to Harrison High School in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And it was a good school and it was a lot of great folks, um, but I just didn't want to do that. I wanted to, you know, see the world, be adventurous. So I saw this poster at a U.S. Navy recruiting uh, office. <laughs> Join the Navy, see the world. Okay. That's the one. That's the one, baby. <laughs> and I saw this, I saw this picture of a sailor holding hands with a pretty Polynesian on a beach with a palm tree and a ship in the distance. I said, that's for me. So and her I, name is, her name is Lori, right? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Which is his wife's name, by the way. Yes, now. <laughs> no, so uh, what I did is I decided that I wanted to um, uh, join the Navy. So I was 16 years old, and it was still my junior, senior summer, and I had to get my parents to sign the papers to let me go. So I went my entire senior year uh, knowing I wanted to go to the Navy and be a combat cameraman. And that's where I learned how to shoot video and photos was through the Navy. And uh, I was active duty for about six years uh, on both coasts, East Coast and West Coast. Well, well, let's 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 roll back a little bit. So you're 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 glossing over some of the good stuff. So, what is the MOS as a military occupation specialty for you, uninformed uh, non-military types out there? What is the MOS for combat? Is there a specific designation for combat cameraman? Yes, it was eighty-one thirty-three, and uh, that was for Navy, U.S. Navy Photomate combat camera and do they give you a camera that's been designed by the department of defense that is you know they spent fifty five thousand dollars on it to basically build what a, you could get in the commercial area for a thousand bucks not at all not at all <laughs> we, we we started out with uh, in in photomate school in pensacola florida nas pensacola they start out with an eight by ten view camera a super chromatic you know and it's basically uh, a large you know, view camera that Ansel Adams used to use, something like that. And then after you learn how to use angles and tilt angles, tilt shift to correct for, uh, you know, angles and stuff like that, buildings, then you graduate to the medium format camera, the Hasselblads, you know, that that type of setup. And then um, after you go from there, then you go to 35 millimeters. And at the time, we were using Canon F1s and A1s and uh, was really you know, familiar with that. And we would use that on every platform, submarines, helicopters, wherever there needed to be photography, we would, that's what we would use. So how long was that school? Uh, it depends. So the first photography A school was, I think about three months, Photomate A school. And then I went, came back to B school and that was for processing film, learning how to process that through these huge machines that they have aboard aircraft carriers in the CVICs, and mostly those were used to process um, TARP pods. Now, roll back. You're using a sure. lot of acronyms. We have a rule. You have to define acronyms. You just can't. Uh, okay. Because, by the way, I will tell you, there is a Dictionary of Naval Abbreviations, and it's referred to as DICNAVAB. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you said, you just said something, it's almost like CIC, or what, what was that? 
C CVIC, which is a carrier intelligence center. Okay. And basically what that and CV is for carrier. And um, what they do is underneath pretty much the bridge where the captain is, is a, a, an intelligence center that has communications and a lab. There's two labs usually on an aircraft carrier, at least in the, in the days when we were doing things with what we call wet labs with chemicals. And what we would do is the, uh, a, an aircraft would land that had a, what they call a TARP pod, a tactical air reconnaissance probe pod, and it would have cameras on board and it would fly over enemy locations or thing targets that we needed to take a look at and would shoot these long, long rolls of film. And then the, the photo mates and the deck crews would dislodge that off the aircraft, take the canister, take it into our lab and process it. And that way our intelligence specialists could look it over and see if we're looking for targeting or, you know, what the pilots are looking at. And that's what we used to do in the old days. So, uh, so this those. is a lot more than just taking some uh, photographs yeah. of people in See, action on the ship. You right? sandbaggers. We get these sandbaggers all the time. We just had Tom <laughs> Kirk on here. Oh, I did a little. Th- he did a little thing in the Navy, too. Yet, yet he was on uh, a P3s flying classified missions into Cambodia with SEALs. Yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back up here, pal. So, OK, let's not get too far ahead of ourselves here, guys. So um, on some of these things, when you said you were taking pictures, uh, are you at liberty to say maybe over what hostile nations or what areas of the planet that you were operating in to take these so-called intelligence pictures? Sure. Well, um, most of the time we're not over any type of clandestine clandestine land or anything like that. We're, we're deploying from an aircraft carrier. And like your friend, he's flying in a P-3 Orion, which is a sub hunter, sub chaser. And That's what he did. Yep. Yeah, so they they would use they had photo mates who were air crewmen um, go board those guys, and they're the ones who are on those long duration missions, flying you know between you know out of Washington State or Hawaii, Barbers Point, Hawaii, flying out of Guam, out of Japan, and they're flying over usually other shipping, other enemy ships or, or you know vessels that we need to take a look at, and then take highly uh, detailed photos of them so we can look at what kind of armaments they have on board, any types of missile launch systems, antennas, anything like that, that we can identify not only the ship, but what its function is and what its capabilities are. So what is the, you know, because we talk, so there's, um, there are satellites that the, the NRO runs and stuff, Talent Keyhole. I mean, we, we start talking about, you get some amazing resolution. What kind of resolution were you getting um, from these uh, uh, recon, reconnaissance planes? Um, it was pretty good resolution. It's not nearly as good as what the NRO and those guys are using today. Uh, their their sensors are so far way above um, the speaking level that we can speak at here today. But um, it what we had is is basically an etch a sketch compared to what they have nowadays. <laughs> For people who don't know what an etch a sketch is, well, you're speaking <laughs> Murphy's language now. That's how he wrote most of his reports. He Saw still plays with Legos. I still do. What's the problem here? If it works, Saw drugs, it. made arrest. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, so and um, what was the what was the funnest mission you recall? Was there anything that came out on those pictures that was a uh, pinup material or uh, <laughs> that you uh, shared with your other uh, mates there? Uh, Russian guys wearing no shirts, flying helicopters was probably not you know that, but yeah, I would say the the most interesting mission was uh, we were. We were out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I was on the USS Salvor RS-52, which is a salvage ship. It does a, when it's really hauling 
but it's only moving around 13 knots. So it's a real slow boat. It's used to towing really big structures in the ocean. And we were out there in the middle of the ocean taking pictures uh, of what the Soviets at the time, it was the Soviet Union, and they were launching um, ICBM uh, fuselages uh, with no payloads, thank God, into the ocean. And we were there uninvited, of course. They had three uh, ships they call cyber spask type ships, and they used them to, um, to triangulate you know, the accuracy of their nuclear weaponry. And we were out there taking pictures of the plumes that when they hit the water coming in at, you know, faster than the speed of sound, how high those plumes go. And it helps us determine how fast they were going. And then we send in Snoopy teams who go in and, and, and uh, confiscate some of the water from the area to determine what kind of fuel they're using. You know, we have all kinds of stuff. So anyway, they, they harass us, you know, when we're out there. They, they're turning their ships towards us. They're throwing chipping hammers at us. So we had a cook throw a glass jar full of soap water at theirs, lands on the desk. They hit it with water because they don't know what it was. And suds go all over the place. <laughs> and they're yelling at us. And and Oh, and my God. You nearly started a nuclear war over Dawn dish soap. No, no, no. Well, the funniest thing was that they they launched one of their uh, their hormone helicopters, as they would call it. And they're they're buzzing our ship with their hormone helicopters, so what they didn't say, know it. Is that is that one of the uh, uh, MIGs or what? No, it's a it's a dual rotator counter rotating helicopter they use for cargo. So they were going to fly this this helicopter over our ship and probably drop something nasty on it. And but they didn't happen to know that we knew that there was what we call a Gator freighter, which is a, a U.S. Navy Marine Corps amphibious landing ship. And uh, they had Cobra helicopters on board, Sea Cobras. And so a couple of Marine Cobras buzzed their ship and they changed their mind. So, <laughs> yeah, and I didn't it, mean the MIG. I meant the hind. The hind are the helicopters and MIGs are the jets. But hey, now I was going to ask you, um, did you ever get uh, – so speaking of that, you must have then been fascinated by Project Arizona. Are you familiar with Project Arizona? I am not. The Glomar Explorer, 1974. Yeah, I know that one. Yeah, the Glomar with uh, Howard Hughes. Yeah, it was called. It was they, it, that was the project to raise the uh, Russian sub. Right, mm-hmm. that broke in half, and the other half fell back to the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, it did. Uh, yeah, because of the metal. Actually, there was a great documentary out about that they get into about the engineering and stuff, and what kind of metal and what it does at those depths. But mm-hmm. did you ever get into anything fun like that? No, no. And if I did, I wouldn't be able to tell you anyway. So you, you can't tell me or you won't tell me there's a difference. I, I can't tell you because I thank goodness I never did. So because I have a really bad memory. So, <laughs> we, you know, so we started this conversation just a few minutes ago and, and you're presenting yourself as a photographer. Now we find out your naval intelligence. So what else are you not telling us here, guy? That that you, you <laughs> I'm still trying to get the Speedo image out of my head. So I'm sorry. I'm hey, you brought it up. <laughs> it's, it's one of those things. It's like you can't unsee like a car accident. You know, you play it in your head. Well, obviously, it was a memorable event for you, so I'm, I'm glad you got to perceive that. <laughs> oh, how far this podcast has fallen in such a short time. Um, two, yep. two, three references about Murphy Speedo. That is the it. That is our quota for this episode, for this podcast. So so, uh, so tell us about the ranks, because in the Navy, let me tell you, it's, it's freaking easier in the Army and the, and the Marine Corps, because it's like private. Private first class, corporal, sergeant, you know, it's like, but you got this made and bosun's made and this chief petty, whatever, and, you know, and this and that. What the, I mean, okay, 
let's work up the ranks. So by the time you get there, I mean, what what is what is the equivalent of an E one in the Navy? Uh, well, we all we're all E ones, but in the Navy, it's uh, you're either a seaman and a seaman recruit, an airman recruit, or an uh, or a fireman recruit. You're you're uh, one of those. If you have one stripe, you're a seaman, airman, or fireman recruit. And then when you get to E two, then you're an apprentice. And then when you finally get to E three, you're either a seaman, an airman, or a fireman. Okay. And what what kind of where did when you did your six years? Where were you at? So I started out as a as an airman recruit because photography is in the aviation department, uh, Airedale, and um, I uh, moved all the way to E five Photomate second class. And um, the thing about really good jobs in the Navy, like photography, is that the only way you promote is if someone dies or retires above you. You know, it's you can so you can qualify and take all the exams you can to be advanced, but they call it past your test, but you did not get advanced because there's no slots available. Because everybody loves that job, you know, it's a it's a fun job. So I got tired of that, so I decided to cross rate and jump from the Arab aviation community to the sea, seaman. Uh, community, which is um, what they call the surface fleet. And that was going to be an intelligence specialist, an IS-2. Well, at the same time, I decided that I wanted to become an officer. And uh, so I actually received a direct commission and became an ensign instead. So I was direct commissioned as an officer and uh, I retired as lieutenant commander select. Well, so you start off as a 16-year-old who's flunking high school and now when you said a lieutenant commander selects, does that mean, is that, the, is that equivalent to like an 04 promotable to an 05? Uh, 03 promotable to 04. So I was a lieutenant and I was up for lieutenant commander, but um, I turned it down because we were going joint with the Air Force, the Marines and everything else. And I didn't like the picture that was happening. It was, it was not a very, very good situation for a lot of folks because you had the Army raiding the navy and they didn't know how to do it and then we would fail in our in a lot of our tasks and stuff so it so was not a good system it's ensign lieutenant lieutenant commander commander and then captain right or ensign lieutenant you know, lieutenant, lieutenant JG. jg yeah correct lieutenant jg then lieutenant and then lieutenant commander commander then captain and by the way you can always tell a navy guy on an email because if they put captain it's always USN. Yes. <laughs> they want you to know there are no six and not an yes. O three. Correct. But I, when I was mobilized for Desert Storm, or uh, for Desert Storm two, and I was in the Middle East, and I walked around with my Navy, everyone kept on calling me Captain. I'm like, yeah, thank you, Captain. <laughs> I kind of like that. See, now here we go. <laughs> you, you, you go. You go. I've just joined the Navy and was going to do this, and now we're going to talk about Desert Storm two here in a minute because. Okay. Um, but but when you did your six years, uh, when you got out. You stayed in the reserves, obviously. Then. Correct. Correct. I did 22 years total. All right. And when, when did you finally retire? 2006. Okay. Well, hey, well, first of all, I salute you. Thank you for your yeah, service there. You, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I thought you were in the military, though. You said Navy. So we'll have to talk about that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> the Army. Of course, the Army raids the Navy. The Navy can't defend themselves. They need the Army and the Marines. Hey, the Navy gets the gravy. The Army gets the beans. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, you know, you know you, we're talking about acronyms. You know what the Navy acronym actually stands for? Navy. Well, well I know what U.S. Army stands for. It stands for Uncle Sam Ain't Released Me Yet. Right. Yeah. Navy is never again volunteer yourself. And, you know, the Marines are actually muscles are required intelligence. Not so much. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We'll have to. We'll have to. uh, uh, That'll be a good one. 
if my best friend back home, Brad, is listening to that, that's for you, buddy. I love <laughs> my Marine friends. You know, the Navy, what we do is, you know, you how how you give a, a Marine Corps guy a, a a concussion is you get some sand, throw it against a bulkhead and say, hit the Take beach. The beach. Yeah. <laughs> well, my, my son-in-law is a Marine formerly on active duty. He actually served under Mattis. Um, Cool. Was there in Afghanistan and stuff, and uh, it just his thing is just shapes and colors. Keep it basic, shapes and colors. You know, <laughs> crayons. Don't let them eat crayons, kids. If you're listening, we. What are our two rules? Don't do meth and don't let Marines eat crayons. All right, that's <laughs> rule number two. All right. So, but you did those six years. But what did you do? At, why? Why you said you wanted to get out? Why did you leave active duty? And then when you left active duty, I mean, you were just talking about that. What did you go into? Now that you have these newfound uh, intelligence skills and you've got your point and shoot. Uh, capabilities. Now you know how to use a Kodak Instamatic camera to great effect. Yeah. So uh, I knew that I wanted to be an officer, but to be an officer, you have to have a college degree. So um, I used the GI Bill and the GI Bill was fantastic because um, it made me have the opportunity that when I was in high school, I was immature. I didn't know how to apply myself. Well, the military has a great way of focusing you to apply yourself. Um, it, it, it totally changed me. Uh, so I was able to uh, discipline myself. And so when I got off active duty, I immediately enrolled at the University of Central Florida at UCF in Orlando. And uh, I got a degree in advertising and public relations. And I was going to become a public affairs officer in the Navy. Uh, but I, I just couldn't get rid of the intelligence bug because um, while I was going to college, um, I was working full-time for a, t- a television news station called WKMG. It was WCPX at the time, Channel 6 in Orlando, Florida, and I was there for about six years. All I can think of when you said that is Dr. Johnny Fever, WKRP in Cincinnati. Cincinnati. <laughs> By the way, that is one of the great, you know, songs, you know. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And who not did, who who didn't love Lonnie Anderson? I mean, heck. <laughs> I just like I just like when they threw the turkey off the building. <laughs> oh, less less lessman, you know. Yeah, throwing the turkeys. You know, I thought they were supposed to fly. <laughs> they thought they were supposed to fly. <laughs> the great turkey drop. <laughs> the great turkey drop and Doctor Johnny Fever and the Venus flytrap. Yeah. Yes, and they're all like, "Oh, it's horrible!" Like they're doing a remake of the uh, of the Hindenburg crash. It's horrible. The it's inhumanity. The, the humanity. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, by the way, I thought most affairs in the Navy were private, not public. But anyway, um, no, except public. for tail hook. Yes. But <laughs> 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 boom. Thank you. Military humor there. Um, it is a requirement. What is a requirement to pick on the FBI and other branches of the uh, service? So. And the fire department. And, and troopers. The fire department. And troopers. Yeah, well, I'd pick on <laughs> DEA agents, but you guys wouldn't realize you're being picked on, huh? Hey, don't uh, expect anything. <laughs> drunk every afternoon. Oh, don't even, oh, ask. Don't even ask. They're going to be at your house today. Look out. Yeah. They're knocking on well, your door. Then it's ATF after the fire or after the fact. We always say. Anyway, back to our regularly scheduled podcast. So uh, you were doing that. You're working at the te- – what were you doing at these uh, uh, these media mogul outlets that you were working on? Sure. So what I did is um, after I got out of the Navy, I needed a job. And um, so I knew that I could probably get hired uh, fairly quickly at a new station because I had those skills of, you know, going to a location with a camera, lights, microphone and doing an interview all by myself. And that's something the news really likes. So I applied for a job and they gave me a test uh, to say, hey, can you stick around and help edit the five o'clock news? I said, sure. And they offered me a job right after. And so I stayed there for about six years and I started out as a as an editor, moved up to uh, editor cameraman, uh, helicopter cameraman, and then uh, special projects producer. And I did that for about six years. And then a buddy of mine um, 
was working at the Golf Channel. He said, you should come over here and, and uh, work with us because they're in Orlando. And I thought, OK, I've never played a game of golf in my life, though. So he goes, oh, don't worry, you'll be fine. I'm like, OK, so I was going to work in the promotions department. So literally, I was the only guy Arnold Palmer ever hired at the time who had never played a game of golf. Um, he thought I played golf because when he said you play golf, I said yes, but he didn't ask what kind of golf. And you were talking putt putt, of course. Yeah. Exactly. So he, <laughs> oh, goes, he goes, all right, guy, and he puts his hand on my shoulder, Arnold Palmer, and he goes, I want you to talk about Dave Peltz and the bump and run. And I said, great. And he walked away, and I looked at the other producer and said, so who's Dave Peltz and what the heck is a bump and run? He goes, well, oh, what? And so I figured, I figured it out, and it was a lot of fun. I mean, I still haven't played a full game of golf. I've swung it a couple times. I'm just lousy. But I know a lot about its rules and, and who did what. Well... <laughs> I mean, where do you go? Arnold Palmer hires you. I mean, did you ask him how, why he invented, did he actually invent the Arnold Palmer half iced tea, half lemonade? I, I understand that a bartender invented it for him. And so, and so they would call it, uh, I'd say it, it's Arnold Palmer. And then there's the John Wayne. And I forgot, forgot how they really, but yeah, it's, you know, what it is. It, uh, it's like iced tea and. Limited. Well, limited, for, a, yeah. for a John Wayne, they just pour it really slow. He walks slow and he talks slow. <laughs> well, I'll tell you there, Mayor uh-huh. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, let me tell you something about John Wayne. Having flown into John Wayne Airport, there was a story that he quit going into men's restrooms. And they huh. said, why'd you do that? He said, because every time I'd walk in there, somebody would turn around and go, hey, it's John Wayne, and they would pee all over my boots. Oh, no. <laughs> no, seriously. That's, by, by the way, uh, point, of, uh, point of personal privilege here, Marion Mitchell Morrison, which was his name, he went to USC, was a Sigma Chi, and that is my fraternity. So back when the Iran, I was a freshman in college when the Iran hostage crisis happened, 70, mm-hmm. you know, 79, our, our, uni- our uh, fraternity, we got shirts on the front. It had a Ayatollah on the front with that red slash through it. And on the back, it had a picture of John Wayne and it said, nuke him for the do. We sold a bunch of those. We sold a bunch of those t-shirts. I thought you were with Bluto and, and Flounder. No, 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 no. We were never on double secret probation. Yeah. Uh, anyway, but back to our regularly scheduled podcast. So uh, you're doing this stuff. So you have made a kind of a long transition um, you were down in Florida, so you did that. You moved up, like you said, to the special projects, riding in the helicopters and do all that stuff. What changed for you? Did you stay doing that for a while, or did something happen and you moved on to a new um, new area, doing the same thing, but did you move, or what would you do? Yeah, I got laid off, and my fiancé left me all in the same week. So that will change your life. <laughs> Why? <laughs> you picked you picked the wrong day. What was that movie, Airplane? I, quick, I picked the wrong day to quit sniffing glue. Um, so, boy, you, you, you get dumped by both people in the same week. What, who did you piss off and why? Well, it was actually three things happened. In one week, uh, I had just built a, a house on a golf course in Orlando, and I had a nice, accurate car. You know, everything was going great. And at the, in one week, my fiancé... Uh, leaves me. My uh, best friend moves away to get married and I got laid off from my job all in one week. And I was Holy like, Holy cow. And was know. that with the golf channel? No, no. At the time I was working for a company called Continental Film and Video, which did um, film processing of movies that were being shot. Like we did The Water Boy, we did Parenthood, Jaws 3, My Girl. You know, all kinds of big features. So down you in got Florida. to meet Adam Sandler then? I actually got to sit right next to Adam Sandler during the dailies of The Water Boy. 
And you can the, do it. You can, Rob do Schneider. It. You can yeah. do, it. do it. He, Adam Sandler, one of the most decent, uh, kindest, uh, humblest fellows you'd ever want to meet. Just really, really nice. Really, really good guy. Yeah, really nice guy. Well, and we're kind of we're kind of teasing things because we'll talk a little bit later about some of your accomplishments. But um, there have been some Emmys in your background uh, and potentially some future Emmys. We'll talk about that. Who was the biggest star you had a chance to meet? The biggest star. I don't wow. mean size. I mean, for Murphy, I have to be very careful. I mean, in terms of uh, stature at the box office, you know. Well, I've actually met a lot. Uh, everything from Jerry Bruckheimer. My stars are more the production guys more than the actual actors. Like William Shatner has actually been a, a long-term colleague <clears throat> that I met. I actually knocked on his door when I was 17 years old. Um, I convinced my 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 parents and the parents of three of my buddies during my high school spring break to let me drive from Colorado to California. And I bought a map of the star's home and walked up to his front door and knocked on his door. Um, cause I wanted to like meet him. Big Bang Theory and Sheldon going to meet different stars. Yeah. And the door opens, but it's not Bill. It's his housekeeper. And she goes, can I, can I see, can I help you? And I go, yeah, my name's Guy. I'm here to see Bill. Is he home? And she goes, no, he's filming a movie. And I, I knew, I knew what the schedules were for films. And there's a thing called blue sheet or the back sheet, uh, that you could see in LA who's producing what and where. And uh, he was actually producing a movie in a movie called Longshore and Rawhide at the time. And I said, oh, that must be Longshore and Rawhide. He's in Long Beach. She goes, that's right. Was he expecting you? I said, no, I'm in town. I thought I'd just drop in. But just tell him Guy said hi. She goes, okay. <laughs> you know, so 20 years later. As um, your, as your, as your, uh, as the protection, you know, the temporary restraining order expires and you can now have contact <laughs> with Bill again. Well, 20 years later, um, there's a secret in Hollywood and here I'm going to tell everybody, I'm going to tell you one of the best kept secrets. So this is an exclusive for your podcast. This Ooh. has never been uttered before on a podcast that I know, but I'm going to give away the secret cause I don't need it anymore. So I can do that. All right. All right. So the secret is, is that if there is a celebrity, uh, an actor or an athlete or someone that you really want to know or work with personally, the secret is to, to work with them is to find their charity and get involved. So William Shatner's charity is um, Hollywood, horses. Yes, horses, Hollywood Charity Horse Show. And he puts on a horse show every year and to where to raise money for uh, children and for veterans uh, for horse therapy, equine therapy. So I volunteered as a photographer as a video guy with him and started working with him for about 15 years. And after a few years, he started to know who I was. And, uh, I asked, wait, him, wait a minute. It took you 15 years to get noticed by William Shatner. No, no. Five years. Still, it's, it's increments. You don't go up and say, Hey, Bill, how you been? Let me have a picture with you. No, I stopped by to you, see you and you weren't home. Yeah. Yeah. He still doesn't know that story, but after your show, he might, he's like, well, I'm <laughs> never having that guy or again. I doubt William Shatner listens to our podcast, but if he did, hey, he no, he, I'm, I bet he does. He might. He's he's one of the. He's an extremely intelligent guy. You you he not only is he intelligent. You know what? He he pulled one of the best business deals ever with Priceline. Mm -hmm. Because what he did was he said, "I'm not going to take a salary." What he wanted was an investment and a percentage. Absolutely. And if they had just paid him a salary. They would have got him for pennies on the dollar. Yep. This dude made bank. Yes, yes. He's extremely intelligent, very, very wise investment guy. I actually brought some investor, or I, I brought I brought a product to him one time in his office, 
and some inventors of a product called um, actually I can't say it on the radio because there's some litigation going on right now. But well, basically, good thing this isn't the radio; it's a podcast, guy. Yeah, I thought I true. would just clarify the distinction. But <laughs> a podcast is radio on demand. But go ahead. Yes. So it's a product that was really transformational. And after the demo, he said, "Hold on, guys." He picked up the phone. He called his broker and says, "I want you to buy two million shares of this thing." And he and then he hung up the phone and says, continue. And I'm like, wow. So he's very, and he made money on that. So he's really good. He's very, very uh, wise and astute in his investments. That's not inside information, is it? No, no. So anyway, so, uh, so I worked with him and I, in fact, I just saw him just a few months ago and he is just doing great. I interviewed him actually for a video production that we'll talk about later. We'll talk and we'll save that for later because that, that'll be, that'll be your next Emmy. So, um, we're, I mean, we're going to work into this, but how long did you stay in Hollywood? I mean, are there mother inside Hollywood secrets? I mean, like, if you want to say, like, is it? I mean, there are some people that you look at and you go, they're just decent people. Like you talk about Adam Sandler, Keanu Reeves uh, is another person, shared a lot of his profits from the Matrix with the production mm -hmm. crew and stuff. Mm -hmm. Just just a really nice guy. What are some of the other things people may not know about some of the the things that go on out there in Hollywood? Any other big secrets you want to expose on this? Sure. You know, Game of Crimes, you know, what is it? Inside Edition. <laughs> well, I'll give you another secret. Um, so before um, I picked up the family and we all moved to L.A., because uh, I, I, you have to be there if you want to work there most of the time, um, is no one will call you back if you don't have a 323 or a 310 phone number. They, 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 they just won't do it. If you have a 626 or anything else like that from outside of central LA, there's kind of a, a, a thing going on that they just won't call you. At least that's how it used to be. I don't know what it is, if it's that way anymore. So what I did is while we we're still living in Virginia, before we moved to LA, um, I called the AT&T, uh, uh, one of those offices out there and I actually bought a phone. They programmed, programmed it with a 310 number and then mailed it to me. And then but what would happen is I started promoting myself and I started getting phone calls from people and they said, Hey, can you come down next week and blah, blah, blah. Sure. And I would actually fly, do the work <laughs> and fly back. And they thought I was in LA, but I wasn't, I was actually in Virginia. And so I, that's how I was able to get past that, that, um, discrimination because I didn't have the right area code. So Trick how did you trade here? Yeah. So tell us about how, where, when you, why did you come back to Virginia? Do you have some, did you have a link here? What, what brought you, you said you were in Virginia. What brought you here? Um, so what happened is in 2008, when the market uh, fell out of the bottom, photography, video production became a luxury. It wasn't a necessity. And at the time I had a company that was doing electronic press kits, EPKs, where uh, when someone's filming a movie, I had a contract with Warner Brothers, Sony, and Paramount where I would actually go to the studio and actually interview celebrities or producers or directors as bonus material for the DVDs that you would buy. You know, you'd buy a DVD and then boom, there'd be behind the scenes. I was one of those guys who would shoot the behind the scenes footage, do the interviews, you know, of, of Tom Cruise or whoever, and then you get to watch that. And um, But that all disappeared in 2008. So let me tell you, one of the great... Uh, like I appreciate Tom Cruise from an acting standpoint, but one of the most miscast characters, and it was a, to me, it didn't do it justice. He never should have played Jack Reacher. I'm sorry, Jack Reacher is six foot three and two hundred and seventy pounds. I don't know. I thought he did a good job. I liked I it. Too. Yeah, I, I, I liked it. it. Yeah, I, I, I'm not saying he did a good job. I mean, he's good actor. Obviously, I'm just saying 
because the character is so well described in those novels, I'm looking for somebody who's six foot three, like in the new series they had, I think it was on uh, Netflix or whatever. And it's like prime. It's like, no, the real Jack Reacher, this guy looks like a football linebacker just taken out. Anyway, I digress. What you met Tom Cruise too. Did he try and convert you to Scientology? He did not. Did he, did you, <laughs> did he ask? No, no, not at all. <laughs> he's, all right. he's a very business by the book kind of guy. He's like, okay, where am I sitting? Where, what, what am I looking at? Where's lighting? How's my makeup? How's everything? Okay, let's shoot. Boom, 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 boom. Thank you very much. And he's gone. I mean, it's, he's no time to, to dilly dally. He's not a kind of person who just wants to hang out and chew the fat. He's, he's very business by the book. Yeah, uh, not, maybe not somebody you want to go have a beer with. You know, it's like, uh, okay. Maybe, maybe he can be really I don't cool. Know. Well, well, we'll see. Well, I'll, I'll call him. Uh, we, we have a meeting next week down at his place in Florida there, you know, with his car garage that comes up and hides him from the world. Tell uh, him I'll, guys I'll, said hi. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just like William Shatner, right? Who exactly. the hell is Guy? Yeah. <laughs> what, the, what the heck? Is he the gardener? Is yeah. he the guy in the trees with the with the drone? <laughs> the paparazzi. That's it. <laughs> well, and now with drones, man, that changes the game. But let's talk about that. Did you, were you ever a member of the paparazzi? Did you go chasing people down for celebrity photos and stuff you would sell to uh, the gossip rags? No, I actually had an opportunity to make a lot of money on a photography that I shot of William Shatner and Chris Pine meeting for the first time. So it's a two Captain Kirk oh, well, yeah, meeting. Yeah. And I was at, a, I was at an event. With William Shatner and the entire Star Trek new people were there, along with Leonard Nimoy and you know and all those guys, Zachary Kinto, all those guys. And um, actually, I photographed a lot of first ever's. It was William Shatner embracing Chris Pine and laughing and talking to each other. And I was offered um, you know a lot of money at the time to me twenty five hundred bucks for that one shot, and I gave it away because I didn't want to. I didn't want to make money off of Bill because he was always so kind, welcoming me in into his inner circle. I didn't want to make money off of that. So I gave everything I ever shot away because um, it wasn't for profit for me. So I never wanted to make money off of people's privacy or situations because that's just wrong, in my opinion. So when they met, I think Gene Roddenberry had already died by that time. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that would have just amazing to have them because that's one thing about Star Trek is that so much of the stuff that they thought was futuristic and now it really couldn't happen. I think they did some uh, you know, they, they assessed it and it's like 97% of the stuff on there. They've got the medical version of the medical tricorders and the scanners. The only thing we haven't done is teleportation. That would put an end to the airline business as we know it, if I could just teleport to Cancun in three seconds. But you know what? Some son of a bitch would probably lose my luggage no matter what, even with teleporting. No, your luggage would be inside your body somehow. <laughs> or inside Murph's body. Right. As long as his Speedo doesn't end up on me, we'll be good. Oh, you broke the three threshold rule. You weren't going to bring it up anymore. Well, no, I, you I, you're right. I did. That's right. Uh, See, I don't have to bring it up at all. He does it. <laughs> and boy, if I could teleport him, that would be so convenient. That would be so convenient. <laughs> What's it like? Summer on Mars. Let's go. <laughs> By the way, speaking of that real quick, you guys wonder, was there supposed to be a game of crimes? We are, we are getting to a crime, but it was funny because Mark Cuban was kind of dogging uh, Elon Musk about, you know, hey, you got another kid, right? And Elon writes back to him on Twitter, said, well, yeah, we're going to need to colonize Mars. Speaking of space travel. So that was, I mean, with all of those things, it's kind of... Let's start talking a little bit about some of the projects you're working on, because this, the Lost Clipper project, which uh, Murph has talked about a little bit, and we're going to go into depth here, but you started getting involved in a lot of these projects. So now are you more independent or do you work for somebody or is this, is this guy Knopfsinger, you know, LLC, you're doing your own thing? So it, this is a Lost Clipper LLC. And so basically 
to tag on to where we were uh, in 2008, we left California and moved to the East Coast because that's where the work was. And I was at the time freelancing on everything and there was no freelancing anywhere. So I needed a stable job. I needed a government job. So um, we moved back to the East Coast and uh, I start looking through Craigslist jobs and I find this uh, job offer looking for someone who loves aviation and space. And that's all it said. Uh, can you produce video of aviation space? So I answered the ad and it was NASA. And I got hired by NASA. NASA is was recruiting off a of Craigslist? Craigslist, yeah. What, was the budget that tight or what? Now, the <laughs> budget's always, they only get one quarter of a penny for every dollar the U.S. government has, uses in a budget. So literally, it's one quarter of a, of a penny for every dollar. That's how small the NASA budget is. And they do a lot with it. Um, but yeah, so I got hired by NASA and, um, became a senior special projects producer. And then eventually, um, I was a producer and then an executive producer for the, uh, for, uh, for the television network that they have, NASA TV. Like I said, everybody's streaming. So when did the, when did NASA go live with their, their, uh, because they've always done great stuff too. I remember, um, I mean, you're still in the Northern Virginia area, right guy? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're in Ashburn, right? Right. Yeah, so am I. So, uh, you remember when they brought the challenge or the space shuttle in? I'm sorry, you know, on the uh, the triple. I mean, on the 747, they brought it into Dulles Airport. You know, always. Right. I mean, they, they. I mean, there was great stuff about that, about showing that come in, and everybody was lined up watching it. I mean, NASA has always done a great job, and now with uh, uh, the, the the telescope and the picture, that amazing picture of the universe where you can actually see out 13 billion light years or whatever, and see light being distorted. It's James Webb's telescope. James Webb telescope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just man. Oh, but you know what? We can do that shit. But you get a bank robbery photo, you know, from a surveillance <laughs> camera, you can't identify the son of a bitch. You don't know if it's Tom Cruise or Jack Reacher. <laughs> well, that's that's the SLS. That's a shuttle. Uh, no, that I take that back. Uh, SCA shuttle carrier aircraft, seven forty seven, which is based out at uh, Armstrong um, in California. And that's, that's what an amazing vehicle. I mean, NASA has done some truly aspirational things. I mean, we were joking a little while ago about all the three letter, you know, um, agencies in the government, but, but NASA, which is four letters is the only one that most Glad people you clarified want to wear that for Murph Cause he was going, wait a minute, NASA in one, one how does two, that fit? Wait a minute. I haven't gotten there yet. One. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's the only emblem that most Americans love to wear around the world. I mean, I've been in, you know, Murphy and I were in, uh, I think we were in Guam and I saw a guy walking around with, you know, a NASA meatball shirt. I've been in, I was in Portugal a few months ago and there was someone on the beach with a NASA, you know, um, logo. So people around the world love NASA. So it was just great to be a part of that organization. So uh, are you sure you were looking for a job on Craigslist or were you looking for something else there, pal? Definitely a job. <laughs> Definitely a job. Okay. Definitely a job. Just wondering. Just you wouldn't admit it anyway if you were, right? <laughs> hey, just so you know, Morgan, guy gave me a NASA shirt. So another free shirt there. Well, you're definitely not a rocket scientist, so that, that there's another paradox. You don't know that. But he's played one on yeah. TV. He played right. one on TV. <laughs> Who's Pablo and where's he at? I want to take credit for that <laughs> son of a bitch. Hey, I'm playing a podcaster right now. How about That's that? That's right. <laughs> so let, let's, talk now, um, let's talk now about some of the projects you've done. Now, you're doing stuff for NASA, but the Lost Clipper is your own thing, right? Yes. Um, so basically, when I moved to the East Coast, um, I wanted to get my master's degree 
and there was a free program called at the Joint Military Intelligence College at the Defense Intelligence Agency, DIA, here in Washington, D.C. And it's a master's, two-year master's program, master's of science in strategic intelligence. And part of that uh, structure is you uh, have to come up with a thesis. And my thesis was going to be the Amelia Earhart search from the perspective of the U.S. Navy. So why? I was doing, why? Because I thought... Yeah, why? Why would you? Why did you pick Amelia Earhart? Uh, because um, you know a lot of historians, you know, it's an unsolved story, an unsolved mystery. So it's still alive in a way. And so I wanted to, you know, just tell a, tell a well known story, but from a perspective that a lot of people might not, you know, recognize. And that's from the perspective of the Navy. It, at the time, it was the largest um, maritime search for a person in history. So I wanted to dive into that, what that is, and how they did it, as opposed to how it's done these days. Well, while I was doing my research, I came across the story of an Amelia Earhart hunter from 1964, uh, and and what he found, and and basically he was the one who first discovered the Lost Clipper um, story. And uh, it's, it's so let's just, let's talk about the, the the Lost Clipper because it's Lost is not the name of it, right? That's it's just the Clipper that was lost, right? Or is it called the Lost Clipper? No, um, the the aircraft was the Hawaii Clipper. It was a Martin M one thirty flying boat, and there were three made in the in the late thirties. It was the Hawaii Clipper, the China Clipper, which you're probably more familiar with, and the uh, Philippine Clipper. Were those similar to the, uh, like the PBYs? Were they kind of modeled the same, you know, with the high wing, the, you know, f- were they flying boats or were they just, were they more land-based? Oh, they were 100% flying boats. They had no wheels, so they could never land on land. They would, they would land a- at a ramp and then there would be a, a tow vehicle with wheels that would go into the water. They would drive up onto it, kind of like a boat. And then they were pulled out of the water to have maintenance done. And and on on this one, so the one that you were going after was the Hawaii Clipper. Correct, correct. And what was? Tell us a little bit about the Hawaii Clipper. Like, how many people would it hold? What was its range? You know, anything? You know, any, any kind of uh, characteristics of it? Sure. Well, the range depended on how much cargo and how many people were aboard. Uh, the original idea, when when uh, Juan Tripp, who was the uh, president of Pan Am Airways at the time, he was the one who was commissioning Boeing and Martin. Uh, flying boats to build these these aircraft, and um, the 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 thing that allowed his business to survive and thrive was actually mail contracts. It wasn't flying people; it was flying mail. And so the U.S. government gave him some pretty pretty big U.S. mail contracts to fly packages back and forth to Hawaii and throughout uh, South America and Europe. And so he basically added people to to these aircrafts just so he could class it up and make it a real classy event. It was almost like an event. When these aircraft would land, people would would watch these these massive uh, planes land and and it's almost like a like a parade type of thing. And celebrities just, you know, these and it was only the only people who could afford these things were like, you know, very, you know, celebrities, industrialists, folks like that. What time frame are we talking about here? We're talking the early and late 30s. Yeah, because I'm just pulling up some pictures of it, too, to get a better perspective. And I'm looking at it. it and, you know, it is it's it is because obviously it's an overwing um, uh, four engine, you know, uh, for Murphy, two on each side because you got to keep them balanced. You know, three on one side would make the plane. I got one on each side for you. Yeah, that's the only thing that's balanced about you at this point. Yeah. So it's a Martin M130 flying boat is the is the actual model of the aircraft. Yeah. And just amazing. How many people would they hold? 
Oh, it depends on the configuration, but uh, when the I think when the Hawaii Clipper left um, uh, Oakland flying to Hawaii, it had 22 people aboard. Maybe, yeah, I believe it had 22 people. Some of them disembarked. And then the passengers and crew that flew from there to Hong Kong was 15. It was nine crew and six passengers. So as you're starting to dive into this, at what point did you realize there's something more to this story than just uh, Amelia Earhart, you know, and a missing plane? Sure. So Joe Gervais was an Amelia Earhart hunter, amateur, and he was a colonel in the U.S. Air Force at the time, stationed in Japan. So he had heard that there was a crashed uh, Electra that might have been Amelia's in Truck Lagoon. So he flies to Truck Lagoon, which was actually a closed airspace at the time, a military uh, area, because they were still testing the atomic bomb in Bikini Atoll. So it was not open to the public. So he now flies where, in can, there. Can you explain to everybody where the where Truck Lagoon is? Sure. So Truck La- Lagoon is is um, located in Micronesia. It's about twenty five hundred islands in the in the Pacific out there. It's um, I think it's maybe seven degrees north of the equator. I believe is its location. And obviously, there's a lot of tie back to World War II and the war in the yes. Pacific and everything else. Truck Lagoon figures, you know, into a lot of uh, um, you know action between the Japanese and the U.S. So. Right. It's basically the mouth of a collapsed volcano, a super volcano underneath the ocean. So the mouth, what was left of the debris in the mouth that had exploded thousands of years ago is actually the a ring of, of coral reefs now. And it only allowed three entryways into this lagoon. So the Japanese, prior to the, the naval aviation, the prominence of naval aviation, it was basically relying on on cannons from um, battleships. So they decided to build their Pearl Harbor, their version of Pearl Harbor in the middle of Truck Lagoon, which was the mouth of this volcano. So you were basically, if you could seal off those three entryways, nothing could sink your ships in the middle of this atoll. So that's where the Japanese built this massive infrastructure of ships and cranes and, and, and all kinds of stuff to have their fleet staged there in the Pacific to be protected from submarines and anything like that. And this was before naval aviation. So in 1944, during operational Operation Hailstone, the U.S. Navy blew the crap out of the place because our planes can fly over the Adols and blow up everything. So it didn't work out too well to them in 1944. But I think we should also set context, too, because even though World War II starts later, you know, obviously, I mean, it starts in 39 uh, with the invasion of Poland uh, by Germany, and then you've got the UK. But there was a kind of a constant drumbeat between the US and Japan because of the issues around, I think, oil and supply of oil and trade and some other things. And so tensions were already building between the US and Japan. But um, I thought one of the I thought there was a Japanese steamer or something involved initially in looking for the rescue or, you know, saying that, hey, we were in the area. Was there any. Um, so when you started re- researching into this, did you get a sense for what the relationships at that time were between the U.S. and Japan? And did it help? Did it hinder uh, this search? Sure. So I had always had a love for Japan uh, when I was in the Navy. I'd been there a few times and um, I enjoy I love the food. I love the people. Very, very kind people. And also as a historian, um, putting these, you know, who these who these people were before World War Two, you know, uh, and then who they were during and after. It's just an amazing research. I mean, it's funny how clever they can be. Uh, In fact, during uh, right before World War Two, there was an embargo of U.S. steel uh, also against Japan. So the Japanese came up and they invented a name of a city called Usa. 
So if you bought a stapler that said made in USA, we would read it as made in USA. <laughs> and we would think it's American, but it wasn't. It was Japanese. It was it was a, they renamed a whole town called USA just so they could sell staplers and things made, you know, singer, you know, uh, uh, sewing machines made in USA. Hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, wait, that's USA. So they're very, very clever folks. Well, I tell you, I prefer to buy something from USA than China these days. So Absolutely, absolutely. Yep. So what I did is, um, so this guy named Joe Gervais in 1964 goes to this island and he finds this uh, upside down plane, but it's not an Electra. It's actually a Japanese Betty Bomber. So his guide, who was about 70 years old at the time, said, well, how about the 15 Americans? He goes, what 15 Americans? He goes, the 15 Americans who are who are buried in the slab. He goes, well, how do you know? He says, I helped bury them. I didn't kill them, but they already dead when I got here. And they were laid down and he describes these these 13 Caucasians, an Asian and a quote-unquote dark guy. So and, Joe Gar- and guys, so real quick too, you were talking about when the plane left, they debarked how many people were on the Hawaii Clipper when it left? 15. So, but Joe Grace didn't know about this. See, all he knew is he took a picture of a cement slab of 15 people, Americans, buried face down, some of them wearing Navy uniforms, and they were buried in concrete and in tubes. So here's the beginning. Here's the the genesis of your 80-year-old crime scene here uh, that's never been solved. It's a cold case that's still, I believe, open because the Department of Transportation and Department of Commerce never closed the investigation on it. It's still open to this day. Yeah, because I think one of the things about that was, too, is that you know, those the, the planes couldn't deviate too far off course. I mean, it's not that they were totally precise, but navigation was good enough back in those days. They knew where they were going. Is that in those lanes, if the plane had crashed, it, it was not flying at that high of an altitude because they didn't have oxygen capability. They didn't have pressurized cabins. So, you know, they weren't like flying at 35,000 feet like Malaysia MH370, you know, and when it disappeared. So it, it seems to me is that the lack of evidence of anything. I, I know that there was an oil slick they discovered, but I'm not sure that they were ever to make any uh, sense out of that. But it's like, but they never found any wreckage, which is unusual because you find wreckage from planes and stuff out there, World War II, whatever, you found stuff floating all the time. Right. And and you bring up a couple of really interesting points. So the, the planes never exceeded 10,000 feet because they weren't pressurized. Uh, they are a very loud, noisy aircraft to ride in. They were called the Tom Toms of Hades at the time because of the thr- long throbbing of those radial engines. But um, whenever there was an accident, you know, these B-17s, you know, dispatched from, from the Philippines could fly low and could see anything the size of a pie plate and larger. So having debris in the water was something that you always expected to find. And so when they found no debris, but they did find an oil slick at the area where the last communication was made with the Hawaii Clipper. And a sample was taken by the by the by US by US Army troop transport, the Teagues, or the MIGs, I mean, uh, they did get two samples that was uh, checked and they said it it was bilge oil. So we actually have a chemical engineer on our team, a lost clipper, clipper team, and his name is um, uh, Jim 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 Janicki, and he is a chemical engineer and he solved one of the mysteries that he determined that that oil slip actually came from the Hawaii Clipper because and when these clippers would land at sea or in rough water, they would actually drop bilge oil on the water to calm the water, circle around, and then land on it. And you would do that if you're going to do an at-sea refueling, which the Japanese were very, very proficient at. So we believe that um, among some of the other evidence that we have, 
that uh, the Hawaii Clipper landed at sea to to exchange uh, $3 million in gold banknotes for ransom for Amelia Earhart, which was actually a ruse, we believe, uh, created by the predecessor to the Yakuza, which was the Black Dragon Society or the Black Ocean Society. And we believe that they had concocted this idea of how to get their hands on the plane. They didn't have Amelia. They just wanted the plane because they wanted to check out the engine technology, the the double wasp engines uh, that were on that plane. And were they? Was that because they were then feeding this intelligence back into the Japanese military for uh, plane design? Correct. Correct. So okay. So the plot thickens. Go ahead, Murph. I was just going to say. So just to give it a little uh, time uh, context here. The Hawaiian Clipper disappeared in 1938, correct? Correct. And July 29th. Earhart, it's actually coming up. This this 29th will be its anniversary. And and Amelia Earhart disappeared when? A year earlier. Okay. So that's just to give you an idea of, um, and at that time, nobody knew where Amelia was. And in fact, today, there's no definitive answer as to what happened to her, correct? Right. And six months before that, if you, there are four events that happened within two years. The first event was the sinking of the USS Panay in China by the Japanese. Then you have Amelia Earhart disappearing three days before the Japanese invade China full, right? So we believe they're on a war footing anyway, and that's why she was taken out. Then six months later that, the, the uh, Pan Am Samoan Clipper explodes mysteriously over Pago Pago. And then six months after that, the, the Hawaii Clipper vanishes, all connected to Japanese Imperial Japan. So just to go back a little bit on the, uh, somebody was carrying $3 million, you said, on the plane. Yeah, Wasun Choi. He was a Chinese entrepreneur, restaurateur. He had three Chinese tea houses in New Jersey and New York. And, and, and cash or gold? What did you say? Gold. Yeah. These were gold banknotes. So... Um, so what was his story for having $3 million, and what's your belief for the $3 million? Sure. So his story was that he was raising money for Chinese war relief, and he was going to fly to China and hand deliver them to his brother, who was uh, a, a captain in the uh, Chinese Air Forces. And apparently they were going to be buying aircraft with that, uh, with that, with that three million dollars, and which is kind of ironic because on the plane that vanished as well was a uh, aircraft salesperson for the uh, Curtis Wright Aviation Company. So he, I'm sure they were sitting next to each other, talking to each other from time to time. So why would you need to fly all the way to China to give three million dollars to a uh, Curtis guy and fly all, and you can fly all the way back? It, it, that you just wouldn't do that. I think it was a cover story. Um, plus, I have the documents for Wasson Choi uh, applying for his passport, which was actually denied initially because they couldn't prove that he was actually from the United States, that he was an American. Um, he said he was born in the United States, but uh, him and his brother Frank were born in China. Um, and they were trying to prove that they're American citizens, and he had a lawyer battling with him. So he wasn't even sure he was going to be allowed back in the United States if he left. So I doubt it was for war relief, I believe. Um, it was money funneled through uh, Henry Morgenthau, who was who, the Secretary of Treasury of the United States, who was known to be funneling money on behalf of President Roosevelt to uh, wealthy socialites, such as the Astor family, Vincent Astor, the Rockefellers, who all had their own private assets, like the Lindberghs, 
who had airplanes or ships and things like that to do spying on behalf of the United States because he didn't quite trust what he was getting from the U.S. Army and the U.S. Navy. So the U.S. gives money to Wang Choi, who then is the front for them. He's the proxy. But but this what was the precursor you said to Yakuza? What was it called? Oh, it was either the Black Dragon Society or the Black Ocean Society because they changed names a couple times back and forth. Uh, under new management, somebody got whacked, and so we have to change our names now. So uh, whatever Black X Society. Um, and so they, I mean, you got to think about this, though, too, is because in 1938, it took you forever to even try and do an international call or or send a telegraph, right? So you think about just the logistics behind how do they make contact? Where's contact made? How do they arrange all of these things? Because at some point, you got to think about the risk because I'm flying over an ocean. $3 million in 1938, especially with the U.S. facing the prospect of, will we be engaged in a war? I know that it was the, we were still uh, neutral at that time and Lend-Lease comes up and all that other stuff with the British, but $3 million at that time is still a lot of money. About $60 million today. And so the government policy of why was why would she, why would Amelia Earhart then be worth three million dollars or sixty million dollars? I can't imagine any government handing that kind of money over to a criminal enterprise. Well, um, at that time, uh, there was a, a there was a special type of expectation in the Japanese military. Uh, it was full of different factions. Uh, there was a lot of infighting going on in the Japanese army and the navy. In fact, uh, Admiral Yamamoto feared for his life, and he had to actually live on his on his flagship because uh, there was there was a couple attempted assassinations against him because he was against attacking the United States. He was not for it, uh, so he was part of the treaty faction. Well, there was another faction called the. Um, uh, a fleet faction and the fleet faction wanted war with the United States and they thought they could win. So they are trying their best to instigate a, a, a fight between the United States and uh, Japan because they thought they could win. You know, thinking back to the, to the gentleman that's carrying the, um, the $3 million in gold notes, mm-hmm. what would his story have been did, that? How did he come about that? those kind of funds, because aren't we in the Depression during 1938? Yes, he's basically doing fundraises from Chinese Americans and other organizations. He was a card-carrying Republican auxiliary firefighter in New York, (laughs) and he was uh, trying uh, allegedly to raise $3 million during this time, and that would have been nearly impossible at that time. It makes no sense. I want to ask, and it's going to sound like a crass crass question, but I'm sorry, why, I go back to my point, uh, look, we all want to solve this mystery, but why was Amelia Earhart worth a $3 million reward that the government had funneled through this proxy? I mean, wh- what was it that made her worth $3 million? And I'm not talking about the value of a human life. I'm just saying, uh, look, I, you, mm-hmm. if somebody kidnapped me, they would pay to give me back, you know, they wouldn't want to keep me, but... I can't imagine $3 million, or you say six, the equivalent of $60 million back then. What made Amelia Earhart so worth it that they launched this operation at, at, this, at such a risk? Right. There's, there's actually, I can think of three things right off the bat. First thing is guilt between Eleanor Roosevelt, because at the time, um, Amelia and Eleanor are close friends. She's actually teaching Eleanor how to fly. They go up in flights all the time from... Um, 
where Washington Reagan Airport is now, they would leave. So they're dear friends. Second thing is, um, I believe Eleanor is is really uh, pushing on her husband, the president of the United States, because he got her to go on an espionage mission. And how we know that is because after she ground looped her aircraft the first time and damaged it, um, the uh, I believe Purdue University did not have the money to repair it. So what happened is the Air Force comes in and says, hey, we'll repair your aircraft, but we want to make some slight modification to it, and we want to change your route a little bit. And so uh, her secretary in, in Burbank, when she was being interviewed by the Air Force, wrote in a margin of one of her notes, imagine me, Amelia Earhart, a spy. So we, we, we modified her airplane to put a camera on board, like, like Lindbergh did as well when Charles Lindbergh was flying over the, the Germans, doing the same exact thing for us. So there's probably guilt on behalf of the president because he put her in this position. He's also probably getting some pressure from um, Earhart's husband, Putnam, who was a uh, big pub, uh, book publisher. So there was influence there. So I said, I want to get her of back. The Putnam Book Publishing Company still. Correct. Think, yeah. Correct. Yeah, exactly. And then the third part is uh, national prestige because, you know, she was spying for the United States and we wanted to get her back. And she was a celebrated American hero. You know, United States needed some kind of good news. We needed any good news we could get. And if we could bring her back home, that would be great. And so I think there are multiple reasons why we were spending that money to get her back. Now, the, uh, so um, I'm trying to lead you into these because I know a little bit about this. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> the fact that um, the, that you're, you're stating that the U.S. military and our U.S. government would have made her into a spy, what evidence, if any, have you uncovered that would corroborate the fact that Cam that was being placed on her plane? such a softball question. Plane. You know too much. <laughs> Let me ask I, you something there. I've been working with Guy on this for several years. <laughs> what color are your shoes? shoes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask it a different way. How the hell do you know she was a spy? Oh, wow. There's a lot of documentation and, and various... Well, somebody, uh, look, somebody wrote in the margin one time, the famous story is... Um, the F guys from the FBI during World War II wrote a memo and Hoover sends it back and he says, watch the borders. So they get like three dozen FBI agents and they start watching the borders between the U.S. and Mexico or Canada and Mexico only to find out later on. <laughs> Hoover was talking about, no, you're typing, watch the borders. You know, <laughs> you can write anything in a margin. You know, uh, you know, so that's what I'm saying. What other evidence do you have other than just one secretary's notation in the margin? Is that a little bit better? Does that sound a little more authentic, Murph? Then let me ask you, because I know the answer to the question. Well, I want to know about your visit to Kodak. <laughs> All right. So there's, there's a tremendous amount of open source, as we would say, the intelligence world, open source information, open source data. And, and mostly those, it, back in the days, not like today where newspapers have mostly opinions, you know, looking like news, uh, there was actual real information. There was real journalism happening at the time. And Amelia was photographed uh, when she went to the Kodak um, laboratory with Bausch and Lomb in Rochester, New York. And she was there um, reviewing the her camera that was going to be installed on her plane that's a that's a big faux pas right there because uh number one is she was very very concerned about weight on her plane and they were taking parts off including things she things she really needed like an aerial trailing antenna 
you know, you kind of need one of those things when you're flying over the ocean. Yeah, and like a fuel tank, you know, or right. you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you're you're taking things off that are critical for remaining in flight, just to make room for a sixty pound camera. You know, that's that's a heavy, heavy thing that you're putting in there. And why do you need a camera on a plane unless you're taking pictures of the ground? You know, she had a little Kodak brownie. She that's all you really need to take pictures of whatever. But you need a camera that's facing down that's in a secret compartment it, that's removable. So basically she would fly without it as her contingent because she didn't want to carry that lunk of metal around the planet. So she would fly in certain places. And the first place they had tried out the camera was when she flew uh, for the UK government um, with the United States help, uh, she flew her Electra into a an Italian Air Force base that she was friends with the uh, Generalissimo uh, who was in charge of that facility because the British wanted to get photos of what was there. So they actually, when she before she landed, they put a camera. She flew over it, then landed in uh, in the Middle East, and they removed the camera. And that was the first time that they tried doing that. And then they did it again in Australia. They put the camera back in in Australia. I believe that's why the Japanese killed her. Well, this flight that she's on where she disappeared, what was the purpose of the flight uh, publicly? Intelligence collection. Publicly, it's just around-the-world stunt. You know, have a woman fly around the world. You know, that was that was the whole thing for Putnam to sell books. But it was really... Um, that was that's what it was initially, but then when the Air Force got involved, they wanted her to fly over the Marshall Islands to see what the Japanese were up to because it was a closed space. No one was allowed to go inside there. And at the time the Japanese Navy was very, very strong and they're they're enforcing that area. It's a no-fly zone. Hey, players, that is the end of part one. Part two, as always, comes out on Thursday. In the meantime, check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook, at the Instagram. But where you got to be, where you got to be, where you got to be, got to be on Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. We have a ton of good stuff, including if you are at the right level, Guardian of the Realm and Warden of the Throne, we have just released part one, episode one of The Real DEA Narcos, talking about The Real DEA Narcos, Cali Edition, Chris Feistel and Dave Mitchell, Go in-depth, 16 hours, about how they took down the Cali cartel. Information you will not hear anywhere else in the world, not on Netflix, not anywhere, not in a book, only right here on Game of Crimes at patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, also go check out our webpage, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We've got the latest merch, pictures for every episode that we put up, books that our guests write. We only put up books that they write. We put them up there. So we thank you once again for being a player in the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the... Game of Crimes.